Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And I'm Lou Anders. All right. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. All right, everybody. As you may have heard there, we have a return of our special guest. This is our first ever really two-part episode, uh, or the first time we've ever known when we did the first part that it was going to be a two-part episode. If you'll recall, in our last episode, we had special guest Lou Anders, author of many wonderful books, including the Thrones and Bones trilogy. He was our guest last week. Last week. He was our guest last time. <laughs> we talked about we talked about the eight-character wheel, and then he, at the last moment, was like, well, I didn't get to mention all this other amazing stuff I have. So we're like, well, we got to have you back. So we have now had you back. Welcome back, Lou. It is good to be back. So, Lou, last time you were here, we recorded like 10 great anecdotes before the episode actually began. And then we didn't, we couldn't use them all because it took too long to get the episode going. So I may just cut in an anecdote you told last time. So at some point, let's set this up. You were the writer in residence at the James Thurber house. It was scary as shit. So it's this ancient, ancient house that's been meticulously restored to whatever it looked like in 1920 or 30 or whenever he lived there. Give us some context as to why you were there, though. Okay, they have a, a, uh, a children's writer-in-residence program where you come out and you stay for a month in the apartment, the, the modern, and by modern, at the time, it was like 1970s decor. Uh, it's been since renovated since I stayed there. But it's, it's on the top floor of this house, and... Mm-hmm. You know, this like four story house and the house itself, the rest of it has been meticulously uh, rebuilt to be exactly like it was when he lived there. And it's in a business slash industrial area of Columbus. So there's nothing around at night at all. <laughs> no light, anything. And the house is supposedly haunted. <laughs> One by, by Thurber? No, by a ghost that Thurber saw. Okay. And, um, <laughs> And and one person who stayed there like called him up and demanded they put her in a uh, in a in a hotel because the ghost was harassing her. Oh so my god! I don't believe in ghosts at all. But um, you know, I get there and they're all like, "Here you are, and here's your apartment, and we'll see you on Monday because nobody's around for the weekend." Bye. <laughs> and and it's the, the kind of house where you take a step, and it doesn't. The floorboards don't just creak; they echo, <laughs> and, the, and the creaks just go echoing all down the floor. And uh, and there's like a there's a there's a concrete basement that's really, really dark with a washing machine. And I was like, no way in hell I'm ever going down there at night. <laughs> and, uh, and so I would I would make sure that I, it was beautiful. When I was there. I mean, I taught uh, during the day a couple times a week. You teach kids how to write and you go into schools and, and, and also places for underprivileged kids to give them writing classes. And that was wonderful. Cool. And I would come home early and I would take like a three hour walk around Columbus. And uh, and then come home. But I always made sure I was home before the sunset and I would like retreat up the stairs and then into there was an office outside the upstairs apartment. And when the sun started set, I would close off the office and then I would close off that. And I would, you know, in this little dwindling cone of light, (laughs) uh, I would not set foot down below. And one night there was a thunderstorm and and they're like, if you if if the tornadoes come, go to the basement. Uh, there's no, there's no effing way I'm gonna go down. And you know the power would have gone out too. And I, they'd find me the next day, just white as a sheet, with my, you know, clutching onto a pipe or something. Um, but uh, the only, the only, the only thing I had was uh, I was in the bathroom, and I was singing "Cat People" by David Bowie. And Brandon, I can't sing. I can't carry a tune at all. So, and um, and suddenly the mirror just uh, bulged out. 
like pop. <laughs> and it freaked me out <laughs> because there wasn't anything moving. There wasn't anything around and the whole glass in the mirror just shot out at me. So oh I, my gosh, I, I but took did it go back in or like, was it yeah, like, yeah, a- it, just, it just, it just shot out and back, you know, like bump, like, like kind of like a, like a, like in the abyss, like, like, like a, like a, like a face comes out of the water no. kind of thing. Or no, it was more just like, it's like someone had hit the back of it, you know? Gotcha. And it made it rattle on the wall. And, uh, but there wasn't any machinery running. There wasn't any, you know, I wasn't running the dishwasher or anything. It, <laughs> it wasn't a dishwasher, but it just, it just shot forward on the wall with a big thump. And oh so my gosh. it had to mean that the ghost did not like my singing. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you, James, have a new book coming out, and you've posted the cover. We'll go ahead and put the cover in this week's thing. Your cover is gorgeous. Your book is coming out soon. It's coming out September 14th, but you can uh, pre-order it now, as they say. Um, It's called Dare to Know. Um, And yeah, what were you going to say, Matt? Speculative science fiction thriller. Originally, it, you were going to have a book coming out this fall. My wife was going to have a book coming out this fall, and I was going to have a book coming out this fall. And my book has now been delayed, uh, partially because it is not finished, and we are still working on it. That's a and good reason. Things are moving very slowly in the rewrite. Uh, trying to get uh, my editor on the phone is a slow process. And so I'm so jealous watching you and Betsy with your book covers and your blurbs and your everything. How is your blurb search going? Uh, I just got a coup. Um, Dan Kraus, who um, he's the guy who uh, he like you know the Shape of Water. Sure. So he uh, gave Guillermo del Toro the idea for the Shape of Water. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and um, he and so like he was like having a conversation with Guillermo del Toro and Guillermo del Toro. Like he said, like, and I had this idea because they were working on some other stuff together. And then Del Toro was like, what else you got? He's like, well, I've got this idea about a woman who falls in love with like a sea monster. And Del Toro is like, I want to buy that on the spot. <laughs> and so, and then like Dan Krause is a well-regarded uh, YA author, like really gross, grody kind of uh, Stephen King style horror. Like, anyway, he's a really good horror YA writer, but he also like, you know, was the guy behind this academy award-winning movie so i got a blurb from him so you know dan kraus the shade of shape of water says you know uh uh my book is this is that so i'm I'm happy about it um that, that's a that's something that'll be on the cover that's awesome oh it's gonna be your cover blurb i think so because uh well neil gaiman didn't call back so <laughs> what about you lou do you want to you want to push any paper any uh any particular books you want to you want to push or promote before we start well i mean the most recent was once upon a unicorn back in august of last year, which is the uh, middle reader about a unicorn and a nightmare who have to get along at being chased by Jack of the Hunt, a pumpkin-headed fairy. And then awesome. I got the two role-playing game manuals coming out at the end of this year. Fantastic. Yeah, we talked a little bit about those uh, last time. What's So, okay, Wu, let's pick up where we left off. You were teasing us last time. You were saying, oh, I never got a chance to discuss these various other things. Where do you want to go next with this? We are in your hands, sir. What I thought I'd do is because the the stuff that we talked about last time with the eight-character wheel is kind of three-quarters of the way through my overall writing formula. Yeah, this time you sent us a PowerPoint. Last time I felt a little bit at sea and I'm like, oh, I wish I had been taking notes as you did your eight character wheel because then there was sort of a quiz, which I failed because I had not been taking notes. And or this time I attention. asked, 
or paying attention. And this time I asked you to send me something in advance. So you sent a absolutely gorgeous and intimidating PowerPoint, which we will go ahead. I, I don't know. Is it okay to put that up on, on the blog with the podcast or, or do you want to, do you want to have that be your special thing? Ooh, maybe. You... Let's let me, let me, let me sleep on that. Let me sleep on that. Okay. Well, we, well, we can go through it. Yes. Let's go through it. Um, and to put some context in this, I, I, um, studied screenwriting in Chicago and Los Angeles under a guy named Dan Decker, who at the time was a, a Chicago-based writer who was being flown out to LA to teach development execs how to write screenplays based on his analysis of the then 100 most popular movies. And uh, for years, Dan was my guru. And then relatively recently, like 10 years ago, I read My Story Can Beat Up Your Story by Jeffrey Allen Schechter. And it was the before I read The Secrets of Story, the only the second writing book I thought was any good. I think most writing books are not worth the paper they're printed on. And oddly enough, the ones that are good tend to be screenwriting books, not novel writing books. But we start off with Dan. We move to Jeffrey. We synthesize it together. So the first thing that's in every single film is the all-important triangle, protagonist, antagonist, and what Dan used to call the relationship or window character, what we've talked about last time is the mentor uh used to be called sometimes the dynamic character but the way it breaks down is the protagonist is somebody who wants something it has to be something concrete it can't be that they want to be happy or they want to have love it has to be defined as narrowly as possible so happiness has to be defined as winning this specific woman's heart or winning this particular contest on this day. The first Ocean's Eleven movie has one of the greatest, greatest uh, desires for a protagonist ever, which is not that he just wants to rob a casino like the original Ocean's Eleven. Right. Any, any, any casino in Vegas would be easier than the casino they picked. Right. And the reason they picked it is not because the amount of money is in it, because all the casinos in Vegas have plenty of money. It's because Andy Garcia is dating his ex-wife. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So he wants to rob that casino and Andy Garcia has to know that he's doing it before he does it or it's no good to him. So that's the protagonist. The antagonist now is the person who is out to prevent the protagonist achieving his or her desires. They're not necessarily the bad guy. They're not the worst person in the film. They're the person who is placing the obstacles in the way of the protagonist. And then you have the relationship character. That's the person who accompanies the protagonist on their journey. They have often been there before, and they have something to teach or impart to the main character that the main character doesn't want to hear. And they're usually, you can usually spot them because they're usually played by Morgan Freeman. <laughs> so act one, we introduce the main character and what they want. We introduce the villain and the relationship character. And then 11 to 13 minutes in, we have the faithful decision, which is the point at which the main character has to decide to have a movie. They can't be walking down the street and be abducted by aliens. They have to make a decision to leave their mother in the hospital and race out into the night and be abducted by aliens. So can you give us some of the uh, concrete examples? Of yeah, this? that was Guardians of the Galaxy. Sorry. It's another MCU one. The, uh, <laughs> the, the best faithful decision ever is Matrix. Yeah. 
you know. obviously yeah. it wound up poisoning our entire culture yeah. <laughs> it was it's it's the best physical representation of that choice that any movie has ever done ever, the ever. blue pill or the red pill and then it became it became this poisonous thing where it's like you know we have you know ironically these two trans women making this movie that that every right-wing radicalized young boy uses to sum up his own journey well, you know, right. but Matt, it's it's not the fault of the movie. Although I think this movie is trash. Like, like, uh, like, I, I, it's 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 not the fault of the movie that it was appropriate. You might as well say it's the Boogaloo Boys. You know, it's the fault of a break into Electric Boogaloo that there are people who are trying to cause a second civil war. I, I mean, that's not like I don't think, I don't think you put that on Wachowskis. Although their sins are many. <laughs> well, I for one support trans women, James. But I guess oh, you. Oh, don't. high roaded. That was good. <laughs> Matt, you're learning. That 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 is some jujitsu that I have to give you respect on that. No, I have a lot of problems with the Matrix, but uh, but no, I completely agree. It is totally not the Matrix's fault. That I mean, they are to be commended. They came up with a really great physicalized, externalized metaphor for the spiritual journey, and it became a monster that outgrew the movie and outgrew everything. Uh, much like Break Into Electric Boogaloo now has as well somehow. Well, it's also interesting that I love that the Matrix actually has the moment twice because it it occurs the first time with the with the cell phone in the FedEx package, right? And then he fails it, and then it occurs the second time when when Trinity stops the car and says, "You can get out, but you've walked down that road before. Or you can stay in the car." And then it occurs the third time, and the third time is the real one. And right. I find the red pill, or this is the yeah, blue pill. Yeah. yeah. Maybe um, the way the matrix, maybe the matrix has to have two false points before the the pill because it's a movie that holds so much information for so long. True. Yeah they they have to they have to give him a series of wading deeper and deeper into the waters because that movie has a lot of waters to immerse its hero in. Yeah, you can't give it all at once, or else it would be overwhelming. So yeah, it sounds like a good strategy. So moving on, Act Two breaks in half. The first half of our film is about asking questions. Then the second half of Act Two is about answering them. No more questions asked. All the all the questions get closed off until you get to the three quarter mark, and the three quarter mark is the low point where we are the farthest from our goal than we will ever be. Yep. Let's do a quiz. Frozen. James, how do you feel about Frozen? It's great. Awesome. Main character. Uh, uh, Anna. Yep. Why? What does she want? She wants a connection with her sister. Why? Why isn't her sister the main character? Because, I mean, I guess it, it, in a way it's a two-hander. Uh, or I, there's, like, there's two. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, there's a tendency to get like too mathematical and schematic right. about these things. Like, why isn't this like? Well, what is A B? Well, then why isn't it C? Is like there's kind of like things are like a little bit more kind of gushy and kind of like at the moment that like Elsa leaves the party and is running across the lake. And, and she's turning it to ice. Right. Anna is not the main character. Elsa is the main character at that point. Uh, Elsa is the main character when she's sitting, let it go. Uh, um, and th- there's it kind of like goes back and forth between the two of them. Uh, Anna is more like us. And so we feel that she, she's more the main character, but I, I don't want to say like, Oh yeah, Anna's the main character and Elsa is just this other thing. And we've mathematically figured it out. Except you were right. Elsa- the I was just trying because most people think Elsa is the main character when I ask this question. And she's not because she gets what she wants halfway through the film and it's disastrous. 
Yeah, and Elsa doesn't know what's going on for most of right, the movie, right, as we were talking yeah, about. Like, is, you know, yeah. Elsa, like, Anna, Elsa's like, what? I ran away and started my own ice kingdom. It's fine. And then Anna has to go like, no, you kind of started a Eternal Winter. And Elsa's like, what? I had no idea. I had no idea there even was a problem for the second quarter of this screenplay. And then certainly she does not, she is the last to learn about Hans. She is the last to learn about lots of stuff. Anna is much more the character driving the movie. But emotionally one of the reasons yeah one of the reasons that book is that that, that movie is so good is because they kept fucking it up so hard yep. like it was originally supposed to be you know the ice queen it was supposed to be like a which is a horrible uh, story yeah the Hans Christian oh i love thing. that story oh, okay okay but let, let's get beyond that just okay. let me make my point it, it was like they, they wanted to like you know okay we've got these great images snow ice and ice witch whatever and they kept trying and trying and like okay we'll make them sisters and one sister will be bad and they kept trying and trying it's like okay well okay well maybe maybe the sisters will be fine together they they kept trying and trying like, okay there'll be true love's kiss will be the answer trying and trying no that doesn't work what if we subvert that trying it and trying it and it wasn't like they came and they had read all the rules and they had knew how to write a perfect thing and they sat down and wrote it they kept iterating and and fucking up and and it, it, it according to like previous rules it seemed to work for everything and yet they like it was like the first like disney movie to kind of interrogate like the idea of like you shouldn't marry somebody that you just met you know and stuff like right. that and it probably and it wouldn't be as radical now either no. like it was it, it was a certain movie at a certain point of time and it, it like the rules were changing under their feet and they sensed it and it could have gone very wrong um and yet it went very very right but i don't think the rules got them through that i think it was iterating and then see feeling out whether it made sense or not emotionally at that point in 2007 or whatever um and not uh like oh i think we we locked it down we 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 figured robert mckee will put his stamp of approval on this we made a good movie you know right except i think that they i think they 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 were excavating the rules without knowing it because the final who knows what they knew right yeah but i mean it's, it's a little bit like casablanca you know Right, where they were rewriting the script on set, you mean? Right, right. And Casablanca is just wonderfully structured film. And it, yeah, but it, it seems it seems like Casablanca was, they had a perfect script, but they had no script. Like, how could you make a perfect movie with no script? How could you, how could yeah, you have made a perfect Disney movie like uh, Frozen when you had completely finished the thing at a time when you had no idea what you were doing and it was completely different from the final product? And I, and I think that comes out of like, you have to give yourself up to the creative process and, and they kind of like take risks without having any idea whether it's going to work or not. Um, and I don't think, I think they were very surprised that they, I thought they probably thought they had another tangled, you know, like somebody was like, you know, this is fine. You, you know, and, and when it became as huge as it did, because of the weird gestalt of the songs and the animation and like, you know, just certain lines or memeable moments, like it's, an unreproducible like it's kind of like makes nonsense of us sitting around and and arguing about rules you know because you you don't get there by figuring out all the rules ahead of time and then applying them they just iterated until it felt good right but that's that's, (laughs) hopefully hopefully (laughs) hopefully you're not gonna be you know uh Hopefully you're you're not going to have to go through everything they went through in that movie. Hopefully you're not going to have to go through everything they went through making Casablanca. You know, I think that the whole the whole idea behind writing advice is to try to at least try to not not make all those mistakes. 
But I realize that you have to also be very open to the process and very open to going like, okay, what we have is not working. That was what they said halfway through making Frozen or three quarters of the way through making Frozen and three quarters of the way through making Casablanca is they had to have the humility to say what we have is not working. Let's go ahead and start over at this very late date and try to fix this thing. And they did beautifully. And they did it so beautifully both times that people, that it seems hard to believe that they they worked on Frozen for two years without them being sisters. Yeah, it, I mean, it reminds me of that quote by James Joyce that like, a genius doesn't make mistakes. Their errors are volitional and are the portals of discovery. That's a great quote. That is a great quote. Okay, where are we? Let's get back on track. What were you saying? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> now that we've blown up the idea of rules, totally, it totally. us at all. <laughs> we'll just move forward. So act three, the, fight, the final battle, the point from utter hopelessness to the win. Oftentimes it's obvious who's going to win, but that's not why we're watching. You know, it's, it's what did James, what, I, always, I always ask my students, what did James Bond and the Harlem Globetrotters have in common? You always knew they were going to win. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's not whether or not they're going to win. It's how beat up they're going to be before they win or how far into the parking lot Curly's going to take the basketball before he comes back and scores. I, and how can they possibly do it? Like what ingenious method are they going what, to employ? What are I they going to become? What are they going to go through? I talked about this many years ago on my blog, and I talked about how, like, when you watch The X-Files, you're not watching to go, like, will Mulder and Scully be killed? You're watching X-Files to go, like, how are they going to win this week? Not, are they going to win? Not, will they be killed? Not, will they survive this monster attack? Never once do you think this monster might actually kill Mulder and Scully. And then Game of Thrones came along and was like, <laughs> and was like no, no. The heroes may actually die, like the heroes, like the heroes may actually die. And you're going to be watching Game of Thrones and you're going to, for all you know, they're going to suddenly kill off Peter Dinklage halfway through this episode. And you have no idea. And so will they make it versus how will they make it is suddenly up in the air. And but for most T shows and most of the history of TV, it's not about will they do it? It's how will they do it? And I think that created a bad presence then because people, were, at least in novels, were just bragging about their body count. Right. So bring it all home. Resolution. Protagonist <laughs> overcomes the antagonist. Protagonist achieves their goal. Protagonist reconciles with the, with the mentor relationship character. And the thing is, the closer these three things can happen to each other, the more emotional impact you're going to have in your story. So Casablanca is wonderful. Get on the plane. Shoot the Nazi. Tell Louis it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship. In the movie, all happens within about a minute and a half. Right, fantastic. the 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 writer in question I was talking to said I fixed your problem. She had written a, a story where um, each of these things happened in three separate chapters, and her five beta readers had read the book and thought the ending was kind of meh. And after she heard me talk, she took the three events and moved them all into the same chapter. And the same five beta readers who'd already read the book once before. When they got to that chapter, all five of them cried. Oh, that's great. Yeah, this reminds me of the the Arndt. Uh, what's that guy? Yes, uh, Michael Arndt. Uh, Michael Arndt had his, like, great uh, endings. Yeah, we, we did a like, whole episode there's, a, there's, a, there's, the, uh, the, there's the external stakes, the internal stakes, and the philosophical stakes. And, and then they, they all kind of, kind of go to, like, there's no possible 
victory to like, oh my gosh, they totally won. And you have to have those all clustered as closely as possible together. Yep. Protagonist overcomes antagonist, protagonist achieves goal, and protagonist reconciles the relationship. It seems kind of analogous to the internal, external, and philosophical stakes that Arndt talks about. Right. And the idea that keeping them all as closely, all happening within two minutes is is, is close to what you're saying yeah. here. I mean, what I talk about that in my book, uh, my first book, I talk about how when you're rewriting, one of the biggest tricks of rewriting is to take, if you've got five good scenes, rewrite them so that they all happen at the same time. And that, you know, big ups and downs. And so instead of like, then something good happens, then something bad happens, then something good happens, then something bad happens. You know, it's like, and then three good things happen, and then five bad things happen, and then six good things happen. (laughs) And that is so much better. And that is, so much of that is about rewriting. And as I was rereading these old scripts of mine, I'm going like, okay, I've got a lot. And we talked about this when we looked at my old Turing script. There was a lot of one damn thing after another. And there was a lot of uh, little ups and downs. And bigger, one of the things I had to teach myself and that I talked about in my book was having, collapsing all those scenes onto one onto one scene. So um, let's do Batman the Dark Knight. The only, the only good Batman movie. I do not like Batman the Dark Knight. Oh, really? I was that was such a lonely period for me when everybody loved that movie and I was like this movie does not work on any level. I do not like this movie yeah. and that it, it was the loneliest I ever felt until Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse came out when I was James with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Everybody loved that movie and I thought that movie did not work and occasionally I just I just become very lonely. I just get left out in the cold on these things. And I was like, but, but, but. Well, I won't. If you, James, do you have any affection for The Dark Knight? Or do you also dislike it? I love it. Okay. Oh, really? You? Oh, oh my it's, gosh. It's, it's actually, you who hate Batman. every superhero movie. One of the only, one of the only superhero movies I really dislike. You love. Okay. All right. Really? Really? Matt, you some love... people just like to watch a world burn. <laughs> yes, and you are one of them. I guess that does make sense, James. You do like to watch the world burn. Okay. All right, let's talk about Dark Knight. Okay, so what does Batman want in Dark Knight specifically? Uh, well, I mean, doesn't he always just want uh, order and shit? No, that's vague. Okay, yeah. Does he want, like, the Joker to be taken no, down? Or... No, he wants something okay, very I... concrete. He wants that's... to watch a... Uh, I know what it is. He wants to look at LaSalle Avenue and watch a gigantic truck actually flip as a practical effect. What did you know? (laughs) Does he want his ex-girlfriend back? Yeah, he wants to quit. He wants to to quit. Yes. He says, he says, uh, you told me that if I could put this all behind me, you would be there for me. And she responds, don't make me your one hope for a normal life. Mm -hmm. So it's very concrete. He wants to be normal and he's not. He's totally fucked up. And he thinks that what normal people do is they marry their high school sweetheart. So he thinks if he marries her, then he can be normal. That's what he I wants. love it, the fact that he still thinks he can be normal after he's like gone and trained under yeah. Raza Ghoul or whatever <laughs> in the East and like and, and like already like defeated the Scarecrow or whatever and like all this crazy shit that also he's like a he's like a weird millionaire and he lives in like a cave underground. He's just like, I just want to be normal, yeah, man. He, can't, he, <laughs> he has any concept what normal is. He has no concept what normal people do yeah. or what normal is. This is the last temptation of Christ. Uh, uh-huh. He has no idea what normal is, but he wants normal. So that's why he props Dent up and gives Dent all the money and says, you know, we're going to make you a politician. If you can put 250 criminals in jail in a day, then that's better than I've ever done. So I don't need to be the Dark Knight if you can be Gotham's White Knight. So who's the antagonist of the film? 
Okay, you want me to say the Joker, but I'm going to say it's Two-Face. Yep, it's Two-Face. It's Dent. Because Dent is the one preventing him from being from quitting all the way through. And not not just at the end when he's Two-Face. He's he, all the way through by not being the person he thinks he is. You know, he's pointing the gun at the crazy man and Batman says, don't let him see you do this. If you, if, they, if you do this, it's all over. He's having to prop Dent up because Dent's a straw man mm-hmm. the whole way through. And Dent's fail, Dent says from the very beginning, you're only good so long till you turn bad. And his response is, no, 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 you're the white knight. You're the white knight. And Dent's like, no, I'm not. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm going to turn bad. And, and it's his failure to see who Dent is. Dent, and, and, and at the middle of the film, when the Joker says, I'm going to kill this guy unless Batman goes down to the courthouse and takes his mask off, he goes down to do it. And Dent steps forward and says, I'm Batman. Literally, physically preventing him from from coming clean, from quitting to be Batman because Dent does it first. Dent blocks him the whole way through the film. Mm-hmm. Who's the relationship character? The Joker. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's the Joker. It's beautiful. The biggest, uh, you know, the, every film has the "you know what your problem is" moment where the person who knows you best tells you what you don't want to hear. Oh, okay. Don't get Matt started about this because he doesn't think that's true. <laughs> oh no because this is the best example of it ever it's in the interrogation room where the joker is trying to tell him you're crazy and you can't be normal and batman doesn't want to hear it so he starts beating the shit out of him and he's he's slamming his head in the table and throwing him into the wall and pounding on his fist and the joker's just sitting there telling you look i know who you are and you're not like them right but i think that this is what i've talked about before in previous episodes is that the person the only person who can really tell you do you know what your problem is, is somebody who hates you. And (laughs) this is a perfect example of that, is that somebody who, if someone is really going to tell you what the problem is, it's not going to be someone who loves you. It's going to be somebody who is really genuinely sick of you. And This this is why Matt and I get along so well together. (laughs) We kind of really learn so much from each other. We've really been able to like plumb a lot of depths of knowledge about each other because we really, I mean, yeah, you do the math. (laughs) No, it's true. And, uh, and there is you that I think, I think I totally buy what you're saying about how the Joker is the one person who can, uh, who despises him and can tell him what he needs to hear. And I do think that's what he needs to hear. Absolutely. And in, in, in the film, the Joker tells three jokes. He says, do you know how I got these scars? And he makes up a story. Do you know how I got these scars? He makes up a story. And the third time he does it after Batman shoots, he says, do you know I got these scars? And Batman says, no, but I know how you're going to go through these and shoots him in the face. I know how you got these and shoots him in the face with his little bat razors. And the Joker cracks up. He's like, that's it. You told a joke. That's their reconciliation. <laughs> Batman has told a sick joke. And that's the moment where the two buddies reconcile. <laughs> okay. So, yes. So the Joker tells him what he wants to hear. He finally tells a joke. Joker says, okay, now go get Dan. I'll be here when you get back. You know, we're going to have such fun together, which they then completely fuck away in the next movie. But, um, <laughs> well, it didn't help that the Joker died. Yeah, I know. I know. But it, 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 one of the greatest cardinal sins in my book is not making a bad movie. It's making a bad movie that undoes a good one. Yes. Oh, uh, I so totally you must agree. hate Alien 3. God, I hate it. I can't, I despise <laughs> it. Alien yeah. 3, bat, the, the, the third Batman movie. And I think the worst offender is actually the rise of Skywalker. No, Austin Powers too. What? I like Austin Powers too. But the whole point of Austin Powers is that he's taken out of the sixties and that's true. Old and tired, and the person who hates him the most tells him when Doctor Evil says, "We're just you know, 
there's nothing sadder than an aging hipster. And he says, shut your face. You can't you, shut, shut your cake hole. They, they, he realizes he's a joke. And so yeah. he drew happiness with one woman who happens to be a fembot in the first five minutes. <laughs> yes. I, no, it is definitely one of these cases where the, they take the happy love interest and kill her off very quickly. in The second I mean, movie. Well, the whole point, all character growth and the entire point. Yes. I despise that film. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. It's a terrible movie, but it's uh, but it's funny. Let's just jump forward. So if your hero is a static character, I need to call this the superhero exception because in old superhero films, the hero wouldn't change. So the sidekick has to change. And if that if that's the case, then the relationship character is the one who undergoes the change or the transition. Cars 2. Cars 2. Never sure. seen it. Okay. Mater is the main character. Mater doesn't change. That's a movie about about lightning finding out that it's great to be Mater. That Mater doesn't need to change. All Mater needs to do is keep being Mater as hard as he can. And Mater as Mater can take on evil spies and shoot jetpacks out his ass and fly and defeat James Bond bad guys by being Mater. I, I saw on your, on, your, uh, on your PowerPoint, you talked about Mission Impossible 4, Ghost yeah, Protocol. Ghost Protocol. That's a fan, that's, I love the structure of that film because we think that Ethan Hunt is undergoing change. We think he's right. in, We in, think he's but, going through a personal crisis. We think right. he's just killed these people who killed his wife. And they're, they're complete, it's a, the whole thing is a complete fake out. It's a total fake out. In the last seconds of the movie, you find out she's still alive. He has been a completely static character the entire time with no change. Uh -huh. And all the change comes from the three relationship characters in that film, all of whom are tied up in their illusions about him. They share the same illusion about him that we do. So William Brandt is worried that he's he's also, but he's he, he's the one that, was, that didn't protect the wife. So right. he, he lies about what his actual position is, and he's worried that he's not going to be able to do the right thing when he needs to. His whole guilt, his whole journey is tied up in this lie about Ethan Hunt. And then Jane Carter is worried that she's going to shoot the guy that shot her boyfriend instead of using him for them. She's going to put her own needs ahead of the mission, which is what she thinks Ethan Hunt is in jail for. So her whole stick is tied up in her misunderstanding of who he is. And then Simon Pegg just is worried he's not, he can't cut it. But he just, yeah, this is one of those things. I love this movie. And it's kind of one of those movies that makes nonsense of like the uh, orth screenwriting orthodoxy because it's usually like the you know the main character is the one who changes and grows the most. And um, no, it like, doesn't. It doesn't make nonsense of it. It flips it. It deliberately flips it the same way. Yeah, it makes nonsense it. of it. Like if, if you tried to follow the advice, you would be wrong. If you're trying to make a movie like this. I think it's more, it's just a more complex model. I think that yeah. that's what Lou is laying out for us here is a more complex model. Yeah, yeah, I know. It, I, this is why, like, if you just read Sid Field and you say, oh, I cracked it, you know, like, you're not done. You know, yeah. in fact, <laughs> no. if, you, if you try to write a, a book, that, a movie or a book or whatever, that was just like a Robert McKee, Sid Field thing, you would fail because the audiences have all gone beyond that because they've all seen a million Robert McKee, Sid Field or whatever, uh, uh, like Blake Snyder movies, and they want something new, like a novel. It's like it, the word means something new, you know, and a movie is like people are tired of seeing the same shit. And um, they, like, like it's only through like breaking these rules and kind of getting free of them in this way. And I, I don't, who knows if they did it on purpose or not. 
but um, it, I mean, that, it's much more interesting, you know. But but I think it's like learning to play guitar. You've got to learn the chords and then put them together in a combination no one's put them together in before. But if you just pick up the guitar and you don't know a thing about it and you start banging on the strings, it's going to sound like crap. I don't know. Well, uh, as somebody who uh, came of age with indie rock, I think that's not <laughs> true. Uh, I think there's a lot of great stuff that can be done by amateurs. I, I completely, uh, completely disagree with that notion. Um, they, they, if you would listen to like the Shags or something like that, listen to like the people who are like, you know, they, they are like technically have no idea what they're doing. Notes and chords mean nothing to them. And yet they turn out something that is much better than, you know, fucking Jaco Pastorius or whatever. You know, uh, I think, uh, I think, I think it's false. I think it's false. I think you should on the Shags album, uh, on the Shags new CD release, it should say a million times better than Jacko fucking Pastorius or whatever. <laughs> dash James Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, the, uh, my, my, you know, my phone number. Shags. <laughs> well, while we're discussing blurbs. Uh, no, I, you know, it's interesting listening to the mission impossible podcast that I listen to. They talk about, um, you know, how Brad Bird and Tom Cruise are both just complete movie geeks and how they, as soon as they met, they became best friends because they just would geek out about classic Hollywood cinema together. And yet, you know, they made a movie that is not classic Hollywood cinema. You know, they made a movie that is, you know, that is wonky, that is strange, that is not a classically constructed film. And I think that there is something to be said for not being the shags i think there is something to be said for going into it knowing that you're breaking the rules instead of just breaking the rules sort of in a brutal manner like the shags would do but you know this is this is my son and i just rewatched falling down uh, he just watched it for the first time i just rewatched it um about two weeks ago and i mean falling down is brilliant because the protagonist is robert uh is is the is the cop uh pendergast or whatever his name is Robert Duvall. I have not seen that movie since the theater, but yes, Robert Duvall played a cop, right? Right, right. So he he's he's on his last day. He's going to retire. He was shot uh, six months ago, and ever since then, he's had a day job instead of being on the streets. And everyone in the office disrespects him, and it's his final day. And he's got a, a wife who's who's very high strung and nervous, who's yelling at him to come home. And when Michael Douglas's character starts starts first vandalizing things and then later killing people he or, or roughing people up. He's the only one that makes the connection. That's the same guy doing it. And so he starts following him and then they meet in the end of the film. And, but the film is structured. So we're following, we're following defense, Michael Douglas's character. And we think it's a guy who was just pushed too far, who had a bad day and he's starting to come unraveled and he's, He's getting more and more violent, but it's a gradual progression. And then as we follow Robert Duvall's character, we find out that, that this guy, Defense, lost his job months ago. Right. And, and he's been going to the park with a paper bag and pretending to go to work. I mean, when he's stuck in the highway at the beginning, we think he's on the way to work. And he's mad because he's stuck in the L.A. traffic. But he wasn't going anywhere. He had no place to go. And you find out that there's a restraining order against him. Uh, from his wife and you see the video later at the end where you see he's got a temper and he's, 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 he's at least threatening his wife and making his child very uncomfortable. And you realize he's a completely static character. He's a, he's a nut job who's been a nut job for a long time. And the main character is the cop. Yeah. Well, it's sort of, yeah, it's an interesting movie because I, if I remember it well enough, it's sort of an anti-populist 
movie, it starts off with this populist narrative of like, you know, he's a good guy. I got pushed too far by our modern world. And then you gradually realize like, no, he is in fact toxic masculinity. And, yeah. and he and he needs a cop to realize that no, you know, he needs someone to realize that uh, no, you are you are an inherently toxic person. You are not a good person who snapped. It, and it, it it it's it's I think it's deliberately constructed to implicate the viewer for having sympathy for him. Right. I haven't yeah. seen the movie, but I wonder how many viewers came away from that saying, "Ha, oh, I'm totally implicated." I wonder how many just came around and said, yeah. I, oh, I think it definitely had both reactions. I think that the yeah. movie, uh, that some people like that movie for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. Some people do. Absolutely. And, and uh, but that's not, you know, I grew up watching Blazing Saddles with racists. Uh, <laughs> I remember watching Blazing Saddles with people around me roaring, laughing. And I was going, hey, this movie is making fun of the people in this room. <laughs> They're like, oh my god, this movie has the N word sixty two times in it. That's awesome. That was that was complete. I grew up in the deep south, and I and I that was completely it. And I I had this dawning realization that that the people around me are the ones being mocked by the film, and they're too dumb to notice. Well, uh, I've like, never seen the movie, but um, I, I cannot I, believe you've never seen Blazing Saddles. Yeah, yeah, one and, of the all time great I, And films. I never, I, you know, I'm never gonna watch The Wire either. So just get used to it. But like the um, like everything. Wait, watch The Wire. Watch The Wire. Uh, um, but like uh, I the wire either. I, I, yeah, oh, a brother, a brother. Uh, um, but I wonder if like there's some kind of like uh, catharsis that one gets from like one's you know kind of uh, I don't know being called out or being shown up, but you you like you don't admit it, but you're kind of attracted to the thing that calls you out or shows you up. You know, like they're all enjoying this movie, Blazing Saddles. They 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 can't. They on some level they must know that it implicates them and yet they, they, they keep yeah, coming back to it, but not sure why. The, I think it's a little bit of the parable of the sower. You know, I think it's that, that um, only some people can, can, you know, um, I, I, years ago I interviewed Robin Hitchcock for Believer magazine. And he had a quote that he said, there are so many self-evident atrocities in the world, but only those who can hear can hear. Right. So I, I mean, this is, this is, this is way off topic, but I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> I I, I I I sometimes go back and forth on what whether or not art can reach people. It can't. Um, art is useless. It's only good for delight. Thank you. If if you, um, if you if you if you start to like say I'm gonna like make people better with it, so I'm gonna educate people, you're lost. I I I'm gonna this is like, this is gonna show people how to be a better people. You're gonna create something awful. Um, or if you don't, if you by some miracle you create something against your own against all fate, you, you create something that's good, it's not going to have the effect that you thought it would. See, it's not going to actually make people better. Uh, like, if something makes something better, it's like completely out of your control and it, it, it could have just as easily made people worse. And you, if you're thinking about that as an artist, you've got so many other things to think about before that, um, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. I, I, think that bla- you know, I think Blazing Saddles and Star Trek were probably two of the strongest influences on getting me out of a deep South mindset as a young person. And both of those are very, very deliberately constructed to have that effect. Right. But it wasn't, but as you were saying, it wasn't having that effect on everybody. But, on, is, it, but nothing has an effect on everybody. Right. I mean, it, it could have been something else, Lou. I mean, <laughs> you say it was that, but you, you, you're saying like, oh, if it wasn't, I always get impatient with people say like, 
uh, that song saved my life. <laughs> you, you know, like, it's like, no, it didn't. You would have been fine. You know, and like, I, I think like people like assign too much importance to art. And I think that you, Lou, would have found your way out. You would have found something else that, that your personality would have found something else to latch on to. And you would have used to get out. Art. I mean, why, why, why do you write then? Uh, to delight. Certainly, there is something to be said for not trying to make the world a better place. Now, Gene Roddenberry did try to make the world a better place through his writing. He had these sort of utopian rules that I think got more stringent as he went along. And I think maybe they got a little too stringent. I, we've talked about this before on the podcast. By the time he got to Next Generation, where he was like, well, let's not have that much conflict. Let's go ahead and have, <laughs> you know, let's go ahead and have them follow the the prime directive this time. Let's go ahead and have them model utopian behavior a little more than they did in the original show. And I think that went a little far. His original goal was to do Wagon Train in Space. And I think that he set out to do Wagon Train in Space, and then he ended up creating something brilliantly utopian that I do believe had a wonderful effect on Lou's personality, uh, because I have seen that happen with uh, Star Trek fans. But then he sort of became aware of the fact that, like, oh, I'm I'm on a utopian mission now with my writing, and that then the quality of the writing went down. And that you have to, you can't have utopian goals. You should write Wagon Train in Space and then find your, and then your own, your purity of heart will shine through rather than saying, let me write something about my own purity of heart. Yeah, Star Trek is a very unpretentious show. Um, like, it, it, they, they, whenever anybody talks about, like, how it is so high-minded, like, that's not why I enjoy it. It's not why my daughters enjoy it. Like, it's, it, it, it's, 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 it, it, like, and the stuff that, like, back then they thought was like so you know kind of awesome it's like oh my gosh there's an episode in which uhura and kirk kiss that was so big at the time there's an interracial kiss on screen like now like that is like thought about is like not thought about at all or just considered kind of embarrassing and even retrograde and on the wrong side of it because they did it in the wrong way like right. it's, it's the stuff that lasts is the stuff that delights you it's not the stuff that instructs you Okay, where are we here? We have not gotten to the main thing that you talked about last oh. time, Lou. We have not gotten to Orphan Martyr. The box! The box, the box, the box. Okay, let's get to the box. All right, so when I'm teaching kids specifically, I'll say picture a big cardboard box. And in the cardboard box, we're going to put four smaller square boxes. And we're going to call those Act 1, Act 2A, Act 2B, and Act 3. And our protagonist is like a rabbit who is going to start out in one box and they're going to hop in the next three boxes in turn. And the boxes are labeled orphan, wanderer, warrior, martyr. We start out as an orphan, literally or figuratively. The protagonist is out of touch with love, friends, and family, either by circumstances or by choice. Luke Skywalker, orphan twice. First his parents are dead, then his step-parents get killed. Tony Stark at the start of the Avengers movie. Sorry, James. He's an orphan by choice. He's a complete dick. He doesn't play well with others. The only person besides his girlfriend who can stand him is Coulson. Coulson comes over. He says, how did you get here? I'm going to change the, 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 the security codes. Why are you calling him Phil? He, he doesn't get along with other people. He absolutely just, he makes himself an orphan. And then, of course, the best orphan in the entire world, Harry Potter, who lives under the stairs. Mm-hmm. And it's great. He's not. He's not in. He's not over twist. He's not in an orphanage. He's. He wants a family more than anything. So she put him with the worst family on earth, 
and he's the puppy dog in the window. They they literally have a birthday party and won't let him come. You know, right. they, they eat in front of him and he can't have it. So, world's greatest orphan. I I've those are talk about books that you know there's a moral instruction element uh, and how intentional it is or how it's not. It's great having now that my both kids have read Harry Potter. I'm I, I'm always able to use Dudley as an example of what not to be in terms of like when they're starting to say like, oh, how many birthday presents did I get? I'm like, oh, right. Because that's like Dudley, right? He counts how many birthday presents he got. And they're like, no, 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 no. I don't want to be like Dudley. I'm not going to count how many birthday presents I got. So so, how do you, um, like in cases in which like they're like, so like, uh, I don't know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he has this big loving family and he's not, even both of his parents are still alive and both sets of grandparents or like uh, Little Women. Like how are are they orf- orphans? Charlie is a metaphorical orphan because he's cut off from every single other person in the film is is more affluent than he is by orders of magnitude. Well, yeah. no, no, not his his family though, right? Or, yeah, yeah. Or, 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 he's a, he's an economic orphan from the rest of society. Right, right. He's cut okay. off from all the good fun things, you know. He, he and how looks, about like little women? He looks well, little, little women. Their father is off at war, and they feel yeah. they feel tremendously. Charlie uh, looks living in a Dickensian time period, even though Mike TV is completely contemporary. <laughs> you know, he, he's yeah. literally out of time with everyone else in that film. And uh, so then we move to box two, the Wanderer. So our protagonist now enters a world of adventure. He or she wanders looking for clues, meeting their mentors and helpers and overcoming obstacles. So this is not about, this is the, you, 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 you stepped off into the world of adventure. You've begun the journey. It's about being completely over your head. You know, Luke Skywalker books a, tri- a, a trip to Alderaan and Alderaan is not there. And mm-hmm. this is where Tony Stark gets into S.H.I.E.L.D. and he starts investigating what secrets of S.H.I.E.L.D. hiding. He starts spying on, on the helicarrier. And Harry Potter, this is, again, beautiful. He gets to Hogwarts. Everybody else there knows it. The one muggle girl, Hermione, has read the whole history of it. He's the only person who doesn't have a clue what's going on, hasn't prepared for anything, doesn't know where he's supposed to be. Staircases are moving and paintings are talking. It's all just wild and weird. So now the midpoint, the midpoint, we jump into box number three, we become the warrior. And this is where... Having gathered your helpers and found your clues, you take your first real determined forward action. And our protagonist now actively goes on the offensive and fights unsuccessfully to achieve his or her goal. Right. You really feel that this is the first time the hero should act? It's not the first time the hero acts. It's the first time the hero decides we got to do this thing. Up until this point, the hero has been reacting to... I mean, the Harry Potter's chased all over the place. They, they fight the troll. But this is the first time where we know what the bad guy is and we're going to stop him. So it's the halfway point. Or at least we think we know what the bad guy yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Voldemort has to be stopped. You know, this is Luke Skywalker saying we got to we got to rescue the princess. She's on this Death Star. We got to rescue her. Up until yeah. that point, he's just following Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's only when he gets to the midpoint that he's like, you know what? We got to rescue the princess. We're going to go do that. And he takes Han Solo says, she's rich. She's going to give you all the money. You know, up until that point, he's just along for the ride. It's an adventure. It's cool. It's better than working on a moisture evaporator. But at this point, he's actively trying to do the rescuer. Does he rescue her? I don't know. We'll have to watch the movie and find out. Star Wars. (laughs) 
Does yeah, he rescue her? Well, I yes. mean, she sort of rescues herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, right. No, he leads her right into a trap. She says, someone has to get us out of here. And she blows the hole in the in the, in the the trash compactor. He totally botches the rescue. This is, uh, um, Iron Man says to Loki, if we can't save the Earth, you can be damn sure we'll avenge it. He's not planning on winning at this point. This is, this is, this is, this is the point where the protagonist can't achieve what they want because they aren't willing to do, to make the, sac- the personal sacrifice that it takes in order to achieve the goal. A better example of the exact same thing is the best remake of A New Hope ever, which is Moana. I love Moana. <laughs> yeah, Moana is a total remake of A New Hope. I'm interested to hear the case. Well, they both <laughs> It's not on, intuitively true to me. They both start out on the farm. They both really want to go fly their ship. They both have parent figures who say, no, stay on the farm. You want to stay on the farm. That's where everything is. All you need is here. Don't right. go right off into space. They both have a crazy old person who tells who's in touch with the force. I like the water. I go to the water. I like how it misbehaves. They both have a special connection to an elemental magic. Right. And they, they both go, have to find a pilot to deliver a payload to <laughs> Death Star slash Big Lava Monster. The pilot, they, they go to find the pilot, but they don't. They don't. They get, they get lost on the island slash Death Star. They meet. They got Han Solo slash uh, Maui. Maui. Maui's going to be the hero. She thinks Maui's going to do it, but Maui's too selfish to do it. Maui teaches her how to fly, the sh- how to sail, how to fly the plane, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then at the end, Maui ditches them. Right. They go on their own. Yeah. And then Han Solo comes back in the Millennium Falcon. Maui comes back as a falcon. <laughs> so that they can deliver the payload. Yeah. Oh, and the yeah. dead person comes back and tells him to use the force. Her yep. grandma comes back out of the water and as, as ghost grandmama and tells her that, that you were meant to have the stone. Yeah. You've convinced what me. What does the shiny scene uh, correspond to? What's the shiny scene? Remind me. Shiny! The, the oh, song. Jermaine uh, Clement is the Clement lobster. Jewel-encrusted lobster. Down in the jewel-encrusted lobster. It's probably the trash compactor beast. <laughs> Seriously, it probably is the trash compactor beast. Yeah. Yeah, because they go down into the depths in both of those. I think the problem with Star Wars is that the Trash Compactor Beast didn't have a song. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it needs one. <laughs> they, they should have hired one of the Flight of the Concords guys to do a song I'm, for the I'm Trash sure. Compactor Beast. Okay, so here's... Finally, so, Martyr. Martyr. Finally, Martyr. And that's in order to win, the, ta- the protagonist has to be willing to die for the greater good. That's where Luke shuts down the tactical computer. That's where Tony Stark flies the nuclear bomb through the hole in the space to die in, in space, not knowing the Hulk's going to catch him. And that's where his friends have been stripped away. And Harry has to go face Voldemort alone, even though, you know, he didn't have any aspirations of actually winning. So I, so I, I, when I read earlier okay. here, well, let me, let me say something. When I read your PowerPoint, I was like, I'm on board with all this until I got to martyr. And that was the one thing where it reminded me of an old blog post that I wrote about, that I wrote about Edge of Tomorrow and how I thought Edge of Tomorrow, The Avengers is a movie I like, but I have some issues with The Avengers. And it fit into this thing that was happening a lot at the time. Here is the blog post I wrote about Edge of Tomorrow. I said, 
I said, Edge of falls apart at the very end. The plot logic is remarkably solid right up to the epilogue when it wrecks itself in a depressingly familiar way. It's the return of the same problem that plagues Superman Returns, The Dark Knight Rises, The Avengers, Pacific Rim, Star Trek Into Darkness, and many more. The hero gloriously sacrifices his life to save everyone else, only to wake up afterwards feeling just fine. Of course, that may sound inherent to the movie, to this movie's particular premise, but it's not because Cruz has lost the ability to repeat and has to really win without any two-overs, which makes the finale far more exciting until the very last second when he regains the ability just as he gives up his life to defeat the bad guys. It's like we have this idea that nobody can just win anymore because that would somehow be bogus or something. Heroism has become synonymous with sacrifice. You can't have one without the other, apparently, and yet they still want to give us happy endings, so they just make it a consequenceless sacrifice every damn time. Here's an idea. If you want the hero to win, just let him win. Let him struggle and suffer and barely kill the bad guy, of course, but skip over the phony sacrifice scene and just let good flat-out triumph over evil for once, or have him sacrifice himself and stay dead. Either situation could have been pulled off in a meaningful and satisfying way, but they once again tried to do both, which just alienates and pisses off the audience. I remember specifically of these movies, The Avengers and Pacific Rim came out within six months of each other, and they both had extremely specifically similar endings, where there was a portal... Aliens, evil aliens were coming out of a portal and our hero was in a suit of armor and said, I'm going to take this bomb and to blow up the alien world and sacrifice myself. And everybody's like, don't do it. Don't do it. He's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go in through the alien portal and blow up this alien world and sacrifice myself. And even though it'll seal off the portal and then he does. And they're all like, oh, he's dead. It blew up. He sacrificed himself. It sealed the portal. And then he just sort of drifts back through the portal (laughs) and lands and then they're all like are you okay he's like i'm okay and i remember one of the things i said about pacific rim at the time is that like like you can make a good case they shouldn't have killed off tony stark at the end of the avengers because he obviously had a lot more good movies than him but nobody thought charlie hunnam had any more good movies than him in pacific rim pacific rim would have been so much stronger if they had just killed the guy off and then worse comes to worse if you really decide you want charlie hunnam back for pacific rim 2 which as it turned out of course he didn't come back but if they really thought oh we better not kill him off in the first movie because we'll want him back for the second movie then that's the second movie is we just got a signal from the alien world. This, that's the second movie is we just got a signal from the alien world. It turns out Charlie Hunnam's still alive, but at least give us him dying at the end of the first movie. Don't have the consequenceless sacrifice. So that was the post that I thought of when I read your martyr quadrant. And I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, that sounds like the thing I don't like. So what do you think about my perfect clue? What do you think about my my concern about those movies? I actually agree to a point. Um, I think that, for instance, the the I, I I I really enjoy Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, but I think that that it is a tragic mistake not to have the scouring of the Shire. Yeah, I think that you know Tolkien understood that the hero does not reinsert into the normal life. They come back somebody who can't fit in again. Frodo cannot go to the home. He Frodo doesn't care about anything but the Shire, doesn't know anything but the Shire, goes on an amazing journey to save the Shire. The rest of the world can fuck off and comes back and can no longer fit in the Shire because the Shire's not the same and he's not the same. I think and, you have a very foreshortened version of that. I mean, you still have yeah, the yeah. sense that he has to head off into the Grey Havens at the end. Yeah, it got so... like You can't, you can't go... 
up and up and up and up to the more, more and more epic things. And then kind of at the end of the movie, have the last half hour, then me just like taking care of a weakened version of Sauron and just like ordinary problems in the Shire. I think that would, people, that would be a, a real artistic mistake. I don't think you need 30 minutes on the Shire. I just think you needed to have seen that the, that the vision in Galadriel's Mirror came about. The Shire just uh-huh. needed to be trashed. Whether you have any of the other stuff, it needs to be trashed. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is I think that Originally, when the hero sacrificed, the hero then paid the cost of the sacrifice, and that too many things after Tolkien, the hero gets everything when they win. Um, I, I think that the Avengers, I don't think it fits there because Tony spends the next, the rest of his Marvel career with the trauma of what happened there. Which is good. I think and, that, no, but you know, I think I, when have I have to work on their own. You can't and, say, and, oh, this is totally going to no, work because no, no, the next no, four movies are about no, him being traumatized. No, no, no. That's. <laughs> That's, that is what is different about the MCU and everything else that has ever been filmed is that yeah. there is one story. And Tony's story ends when he comes back to the same moment and dies in Endgame. That's, That's true. That's true. true. It's sort of they gave us the sacrifice that they that they teased us with in mm-hmm. the first Avengers movie. They then he actually commits in the final Avengers movie. And it it is enriched you know if it felt cheap the first time it just made it feel all the richer when it happened for real by the way james uh tony stark dies at the end of endgame i don't want oh no oh <laughs> not my boy tony <laughs> i uh, I'm sure he'll be back i'm sorry to spoil I'm sure they'll that. find some bullshit way to re- resurrect him <laughs> i uh i highly doubt that he was the only actor who they were actually paying paying more than scale yep. yeah yeah exactly that's why <laughs> But um, so, you know, here's how I think we can we can bring our our, our ideas together. Is that um, we, the, I think it's the word martyr that's kind of setting our teeth out of joint because it has a very specific meaning, and it's a it's a one word thing that kind of fits the, all the other one word things. But I think what you mean to say is person who's willing to put it all on the line. There's no one word to mean that, but we did an episode before about um uh, about the uh what, what was it called the uh, moment of grace. Yeah, um, the person like the the hero has this moment in which they 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 do everything they can possibly do to put themselves in the situation in which it could go either way and they have no control over it at that point and, and then kind of like god more or less decides whether or not they're going to succeed or fail but like they 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 do all the things to get themselves up to the point where it's out of their hands and i th- and there's no pithy way to say that uh like martyr but martyr i think is like covers some of the cases that you're talking about but not all the cases and it and it can it can you know it can be done cheaply like you don't want to do you have to be careful with having a martyr fourth quarter and that it it should not feel cheap or unearned right but like so somebody who's willing to put themselves in the hands of an angry god uh can you put that in your in your purple square (laughs) there's probably a a word in german for it yeah (laughs) yeah no i i agree i think that james did a good job in that episode talking about how you know there has to be a moment like in toy story where they go through all the clever things to make it back into the car and yet it all fails like you know like they you know you have the moment where the movie seems like okay this is the point where all of their efforts will culminate in success and instead they all culminate in failure and then you have to sort of let go and let God after that. And obviously it's in Star Wars. Obviously it's in a lot of things. The sort of let go moment. And I think that is what you're sort of getting at with Martyr. 
But uh, okay, so where are we? Orphan, Wanderer, Hero, Martyr. I think this is a good template. I think that orphan, I mean, as James pointed out, like there's movies where it's like they're not orphans at all. But in figuring out in what way your hero is an orphan, in which way your hero is bereft, because I think, I mean, I think you could say that obviously not every hero is an orphan. You can say that every hero is in some way bereft. And then Wanderer, this is what I would call that. I call the second quarter of a story the easy way. The hero is not, the hero is committed, but is not on the right track and is trying, is not fully committed to doing the best way, to trying the hard way, to doing the best thing. Then Warrior, I like Warrior. I call that the hard way. Martyr, I call it the crisis, I guess. Mm -hmm. But Martyr is the trickiest of these four in that it is the one where I read Orphan, I'm like going, oh yeah, it is interesting to think about how a hero is like an orphan in the first act. I read Wander, I'm like, oh, it is interesting to think about how the hero is like Wander. It is interesting to think about the hero is like Wander. I hear Martyr and I'm like, oh, oh, I so many movies that I didn't like played up the Martyr element. Certainly you would agree with that like Star Trek Into Darkness, comparing Star Trek II to Star Trek Into Darkness, which is something we've done on this blog, on this podcast before, when Spock dies at the end of Star Trek II. And again, all you have to do is just bring him back in Star Trek III, and it's fine. But having him actually be dead at the end of Star Trek II, as opposed to the ending of Star Trek Into Darkness, where, you know, where they, instead of killing off Spock, they kill off Kirk, and then they bring Kirk back at the end of that movie. And several people pointed out, like, uh, the way you brought back Kirk at the end of that movie would have ended all death forever. Like, every single death in the universe could have been counteracted in that method. And so, like, what's going to happen for every movie that you have after this one, where suddenly there's no such thing as death in this universe? I mean, it was the same problem they had in the first Star Trek reboot movie, where they're like, oh, you can now teleport across the galaxy onto moving ships. And they're like, okay, well, then there's no need for space travel ever again, is there? No one needs to age again because of <laughs> Star Trek Next Generation where they all turn into kids. They want to be. Star Trek's one the, 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 the fault of Star Trek is they have this premise that people are just so good that they accept a finite lifespan. And anytime anyone tries to extend their lifespan, you know they're going to be evil. Right. Um, and I don't buy that. But, uh, but, but Lou, do you do you do you agree with me that 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 phony martyrdom is a problem? I think that um, yeah, of course. But I also think that Star Trek Into Darkness is a very forgettable movie. <laughs> it's, but, um, I, I I wish it was more forgettable than it was. <laughs> I, I think that the martyr. I think there are some good parts. Uh, I like when they, when he like teams up with uh, Khan briefly, and they're like flying through space, or kind of like jumping from one ship to the other. That's a really good action scene. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> That's my response. That's my response to Star Trek Into Darkness. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think it's generally a good idea. I think it's, I think it's generally a good idea. I think that pushing it in the direction of the moment of the moment of grace, pushing it out of the direction of heroism is sacrifice and only sacrifices heroism, pushing it out of the direction of that. I think I can totally see how that works with, with the examples you're giving with the things you talk about here. But martyrdom can also just be sacrificing yourself to yourself. It can be, it can be giving up the thing you won't give up. Like, you know, he's not the main character, but Harrison Ford giving up self-importance to come help at the end of star Wars. 
Oh, giving up everything, giving up yeah, his yeah. his chance for essentially giving up his life because we eventually right. find out he's lost his one chance to get away and eventually ends up. Right. I guess kidnapped. Martyr has such a specific like uh, well, I mean, visceral it's meaning. It, it's Rick in Casablanca gives up Elsa. He martyrs himself. To, he right. gets he tells Elsa to get on the plane. Yes, and that's and that's very much a real sacrifice. That's something right, he right. genuinely gives it up. He genuinely has to learn to live without it. Han at the end of New Hope genuinely gives something up. And gives up his chance to get away, gives up his chance to go pay off Jabba. Luke, you have Luke here listed under murder as I shut down my tactical computer. I mean, Luke doesn't, I mean, obviously Luke is a martyr in that his mentor dies, but talk more about how Luke is a martyr at the end of Star Wars. I think that um, Luke's whole desire is to be a pilot. And I think Luke just has to choose between the faith and technology dichotomy, and he steps firmly into the camp of faith. Right. He's so he's he's a martyr in that his sense of himself as a as his his dream of himself as a hotshot laser yeah. fighter pilot using the computer doing that stuff is he walks yeah. away from that and walks onto this spiritual path which yeah. he had not seen himself as being on. Sure, I, I think I I wonder if like a martyr slash god might be. <laughs> Like the the final step, you know, like it's somebody who puts himself in touch with the divine, with something that is like kind of almost outside of the normal logic of the story and the world and draws upon that energy. And um, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a phoenix aspect to it. You, you burn away the old self and then you come back with the new self. Okay, so... I feel like uh, I feel like you have had you have brought a lot of good stuff today, oh, yeah. and we have talked, and it has led to a lot of good conversation, and that we are finding out we are just getting more ways to look at these stories. Specifically, we're getting more ways to look at Star Wars and Harry Potter. The two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do things which it turns out you know eventually you know they do make podcasts where it's like every episode of the podcast i discovered a podcast today that is every episode of the podcast discusses five minutes of superman three. Oh boy <laughs> wow <laughs> and uh, eventually we should just start doing that we should just go like all right now we're gonna have an episode of this podcast to just talk about the first minute of star wars and then the next episode we'll talk about the second minute but uh, yeah, I think... you, the, the great thing about those podcasts, you're always wondering when the gunshot is going to go off. <laughs> when they're finally going to get sick and tired of it. Um, so you... Yeah, I think, uh, uh, Lou, you, you are now part of the tribe because uh, Matt was like so apologetic about us like giving pushback. But in fact, this just means that you are kind of in a way a third co-host now because <laughs> this is exactly what Matt and I do to each other all the time. It has felt like a rite of passage. Yeah, um, we, uh, you're a martyr. Actually. If only, if only a word for it. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I have to give up my attachment to something. It's probably the word, and come back with a new word, stronger. Oh yeah, yeah. You have to, you have to go through this whole thing yourself. And oh, this I is can, very meta. Then I can win. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that was in my book and then it got cut, this idea that when I write a screenplay, I go through all the steps of my structure of writing a screenplay where it's oh, like, you know, I've, I've got my my beat sheet that I started with. And then I once I realize the beat sheet has completely led me astray, I then get to this crisis where I have to throw away my beat sheet and then start over from scratch and improv for the second, you know, and improvise for the second half of writing the screenplay. And that, you know, that I... I am following as a writer. I am following the same hero's journey as my hero to a certain extent. Well, that's the 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 you know this is great, this is shit. I am shit. 
<laughs> this is great. This is great. This is hard. This is shit. I am shit. This is great. Yeah. It's, uh, it's what I we all go great. through. You have to end with I am great. Yeah. Maybe. Right? <laughs> I end every day. Say it like, to myself 10 times. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay. Well, Blue, this has been wonderful. We're going to have another great episode. We're going to turn this out. Thanks so yeah. much for coming on. We will we will hear we will hear from you again at some point. We will take this and uh, cut this together into a great episode. Wonderful. Uh, Good night, okay. guys. Great. Thanks. Go we'll talk to no you more. soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.